Sometimes we feel excited. Sometimes we feel mad. Sometimes we feel nervous. Sometimes we feel sad. Sometimes we feel enjoyed. These are some of the feelings that we feel. So as I said, last weekend we finished a series that we've been doing called Go, kind of talking about what it looks like for us to live as witnesses of Jesus. And this week we start a new series called The Feelings That We Feel. And the way that we like thought about this series and kind of what piqued our interest into doing this is actually um, comes from my daughter, comes from my eight-year-old daughter. So I have a, a daughter, Natalie, who's eight. When she was about six, some, six something, uh, it, she was sitting at the kitchen table, and so this is like normal for my daughter, right? Like she would sit at the kitchen table, and she still does this. She'll color, or she'll draw, or she'll write something, or she'll, you know, make some sort of craft thing, whatever. So she's in the kitchen sitting at the table. Um, me and my son, Luke, who's 11, were like sitting on the couch watching a football game or something. My wife was somewhere around the house. Uh, probably cleaning. That's what she does for fun, right? So anyway, uh, Natalie's at the kitchen table, and eventually, so she's in there for a while, and eventually she comes out, and she has this little piece of paper, or this stack of papers that she stapled together, and she gave to me, and on the front, it says, the feelings that you are. That's a picture of it right there. The feelings that you are. And so I grab, she's like, Daddy, I made this for you, right? So I grab it, and I'm, like, starting to flip through it. And every page that I go forward, I'm, like, a little bit more, like, aw, you know, aw, it's so interesting. So, so I scan some of them. I'd like for you to see it. Here it is. Here's the first one. So I flip it, and it's like, sometimes you feel excited, right? She goes to the next one. Sometimes you feel sad, right? You're sad sometimes. You've got little tears coming down, the frown on the face, Sometimes you're mad, right? You're mad sometimes. Just reality. These are the feelings that we feel, right? Next one, uh, nerves or nervous, right? <laughs> not, not properly spelled, a lot of these things. You got the little frown, right, on the face, little squiggly lines on the mouth. Sometimes you're happy, big, smiley, toothy mouth. Sometimes you're enjoyed, I'm not exactly sure what she meant. Maybe you're enjoyed by others. I don't know. I love her spelling there. Sometimes you're hangry, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if that was intentional or not. You're angry and hungry smushed together. It's real, right? It's a feeling that we feel. The next one is um, sometimes you feel like you should be with a friend, right? I'm like, yeah, that's true. Sometimes you feel like you should be with a friend. I get that feeling. Sometimes you feel smart, right? And you just, you get it. Sometimes you feel like you need to go to the bathroom. And she drew a picture of somebody sitting on a toilet. I'm not sure what this is. I think it's a mushroom. I don't know why, but no, it's a sink. I think it's a sink. She goes on. She says, sometimes you feel loved. And she's got the little, the little hard eyes. Sometimes you feel scarred. That's what pirates feel when they're frightened. Scarred. Scared. And then the last one, sometimes you feel like you need 
a hog, which <laughs> we've been teaching her German. That's German for hug, hog, right? Anyway, so I, like, I'm flipping through this thing, and I'm like, this is so cute. Like, you know, it's, it's a little proud parent moment, right? Like, it's adorable. But then I start thinking about it, and I'm like, just, I'm, Im- I'm impressed with her. So, so if you've met my daughter, my daughter is like the happiest little girl. Like, most of the time, she's just smiling. She's in a good mood. She's happy. If, she's a, if, if like, something bad happens and she's in a bad mood and she's crying or something, like, I just got to, like, look at her with a funny face or tickle her, and she'll start to laugh, and she'll start to smile and feel better. Like, that's just who she is. And so as she's writing this at the kitchen table, she's happy, like she's in a good mood as she's doing this, but I thought it was so, I thought it was so interesting. At six years old, she had the ability to recognize sort of the, the spectrum of human emotions, right? And she didn't just write, she's a happy girl, but she didn't just write the happy emotions, right? Like it, it was almost like as she writes all of these things down there, she did it in, in really sort of a matter-of-fact way. And maybe, again, maybe I'm reading into it a little bit too much, but what I felt like was she was sort of validating all of the different human emotions that we feel. And I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, it's so interesting because she's six years old, and as a six-year-old, she can experience the full spectrum of emotions that her 41-year-old dad experiences, right? Just in her own little six-year-old way. And we didn't teach her, you know, how to feel those things. Again, she didn't just write down the ones that she liked feeling and didn't write down the other ones. She wasn't traumatized by the bad feelings when you're sad sometimes. It didn't terrify her of those feelings. She just sort of recognized them and in her own little six-year-old way validated them. Like, these are the feelings that you feel. And what it reminded me of, almost like there's a time for everything, right? It reminded me of uh, this passage in Ecclesiastes. I bet some of you have heard of it before. So a guy named Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is generally regarded as one of the wisest individuals to ever live, right? And so this is what Solomon writes. Listen to this. He says, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, and a time to gather them, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, a time to give up, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear, a time to mend, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, in a time for peace. And I read that and I'm like, these are, this is a, every season, every activity, from Solomon's perspective, he's saying there's a time for everything, right? And I look at that list and I go, wow, think of all of the emotions that are caught up in that list, right? Like those are activities, those are things that we do, those are things that we experience, but man, they are filled with emotions. Like think of the emotions that we feel when, we, when there's killing, right? Think of emotions with healing. Think of emotions when you tear something down. The emotions with weeping, the emotions with laughing, mourning, dancing, embracing, giving up, right? Like these seasons, these activities under heaven, all this breath, this spectrum of them are all tied up in emotions. And I look at how Solomon sees it and I feel like he sees it 
actually very similar to how my six-year-old daughter sees it. There's a time for all of these things. They're legit, right? The full spectrum of emotions are legit for us. And so here, here's my question. Here's a question for you. How do you feel about feelings? Like, how do you feel about feelings? How do you feel about the spectrum of emotions that we as human beings could feel? Because sometimes, many of us, it's interesting some of the conversations that I've had over the last couple weeks, many of us, the bad feelings, the negative feelings, the unpleasant feelings, we go, I don't want to feel those. And so I'm going to cut them short. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of neuter my feelings, right? I'm going to take, guys, we could be the worst at this. I'm going to take those negative feelings I don't really want to feel, that I don't enjoy feeling, and I'm going to push them way, way, way down so I don't feel them anymore, or at least I don't feel them as strong anymore. And I hope that they'll just go away, but they never go away. Or we medicate our feelings, right? Like I could go, if, if, if I have a friend that dies and I'm sad, I could go to the doctor tomorrow and he can, and I say, I'm sad. And he'll go, here's pills. They will make you not feel sad anymore. And please hear me. I'm not saying that all medication is bad. And I'm, please don't, that's not what I'm saying. But how often do some of those negative feelings, we go, I don't like feeling them. And so maybe it's literal medication we use to medicate ourselves. Maybe it's drugs and alcohol, right? Maybe it's, uh, you know, pleasure seeking. Think about how often we do that. I feel bad right now, therefore I'm going to do something that I enjoy so I don't feel bad anymore. Maybe it's distraction, maybe it's diversion, instead of feeling them appropriately in a healthy way, even the unpleasant ones. See, I've, I've heard a lot of people, and I get this, but I've heard a lot of people say things like, uh, nothing's going to steal my joy. No one's going to steal my joy. And I get it. Like, I understand the sentiment there. Like, we want to be joyous people. We want to be happy people. I understand that. But I think, man, there's plenty of times when maybe joy is not the most appropriate feeling for us to feel. There's plenty of times when joy is not the best feeling for us to feel. So let me ask you a question. Could it be possible that the best thing for us to feel sometimes is sadness. Could it be possible that the best thing for us to feel sometimes is anger? Could it be possible that the best thing for us to feel sometimes is hurt or jealousy or disgust? And, and allowing ourselves to actually feel some of those feelings that we probably don't like is actually the best thing for us, even though we don't like them. So, so here's the purpose of this series. We are uh, like sentient beings, right? Like we feel things. We feel things deeply and personally. We have emotions. We have feelings. Those emotions and feelings are based on our beliefs. They're based on our circumstances. They're based on our relationships. They're based on our humanity. And we have like this wide range of emotions from, from indescribably pleasant to unfathomably unpleasant, Right? and everything in between. And here's the thing. Every single one of them is from God. This point of the series. We can feel so good, and we can feel so bad 
and everything in between. But everything, every single one of this, the whole spectrum of emotions is something that God gives us. He made us with the capacity to feel all of those things on purpose. Every feeling that we feel is from God. And so there's appropriate times and circumstances to feel those feelings, all of them. And there are inappropriate times and circumstances to feel all of those feelings. There's appropriate ways for us to feel and express those feelings, and there are inappropriate ways for us to feel and express or maybe repress those feelings. And so in the series, we're going to look. This is kind of the point of the series. We're going to look at some of these emotions. Uh, we're going to look, today actually, we're going to look at a fun emotion to have. Um, the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the harder emotions for us to, to live with and to feel. And we're going to do it understanding that God gives us these things, these emotions, these feelings on purpose. They're actually a gift from God, right? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at different passages, different characters, I guess, people in the Bible that did a good job of expressing those uh, emotions appropriately, okay? So um, I've spent, like in my life, I spent a fair amount of time studying, for whatever reason, studying like educational psychology and learning theory stuff, which I, I realize to some people sounds incredibly boring, right? Like I get that. To some people, that's really interesting. But for whatever reason, like with some schooling stuff and just on my own, I have always been really fascinated with how the brain works, like how we think about things and how we learn and how we retain information, all that sort of stuff. And so I want, I want to do something a little bit different. So hang with me. Um, I want you to put your thinking caps on, okay? You don't literally have to do that if you don't want to. We put your thinking caps on, and I want to take us through, I think it would be helpful um, to spend seven minutes, I won't go more than seven minutes, seven minutes, and just talk about the psychology of emotion. Because the social sciences, so psychology specifically, actually they've done a ton of research into sort of the, hum the spectrum of human emotions that we feel. And I think looking at, spending a few minutes looking at it will help us understand a little bit more about how we're wired, okay? So hang with me, seven minutes, okay? So, so one of the really interesting things that um, I've, I've learned is um, there's a guy named Howard Gardner who's a psychologist at Harvard, smart, super smart guy at Harvard, and so he's done all kinds of research on intelligence and how we define intelligence, right? And so some, traditionally in schools, we define intelligence as like um, doing well, being, being gifted at the three R's, right? Reading, writing, arithmetic. I know only one of them really starts with an R. I get that, right? But the three R's, that's kind of what our schools maybe target. We say, if you're good at the three R's, then you're intelligent. And so Gardner said, man, I don't know. I don't think that's, that's all that intelligence is, is the three R's. Seems like there are other forms of intelligence out there. And so he did all of this research. And what he's come up with is there are at least nine different ways that people are intelligent, right? And so two of them, go, go to that next slide. So two of them sort of fit into these three R things. So we have this verbal linguistic intelligence. And so people that read, write, and speak well would have high verbal linguistic intelligence. And then you have logical mathematical intelligence, right? So people that understand logic and reason and math, they would have high logical mathematical intelligence. But then he said, there's a whole slew, at least, he's actually doing some more additional research on some more of these. But he's saying there's a whole slew of other ways that people are intelligent. And I think this is fascinating. So he would go, <clears throat> I'll be quick with these. You can 
check this out on, on the web sometimes if you want to dig in a little bit more. But spatial visual intelligence. So some people have a really good understanding of space and image and abstraction and all of those things. So like maybe a home designer would have great visual, spatial visual intelligence. They just sort of know where, how to arrange things, right? Another one is uh, bodily kinesthetic intelligence. So a guy like LeBron James, man, he can do things, he can control his body, and he has coordination with his body that is absolutely unique. A surgeon, right? The way that they can control the instruments to do exactly what they want to do, they have very high bodily kinesthetic. Musical intelligence. John, these folks that are leading up here have high musical intelligence, right? Naturalist intelligence. A biologist, for example, has an amazing understanding. It just comes natural of like biology, nature, uh, existential intelligence. A philosopher would have a, an abnormal understanding of like why we exist, right? And then these last two are really kind of my point with all this. There's also interpersonal intelligence and intrapersonal intelligence. Interpersonal is like, I have the ability to understand people, right? I have the ability to, to be in touch with other people's emotions. I bet you've met people like that. They're just wired that way. They're like people people. They understand and can connect with people in deep, meaningful ways. It's very natural for them. And then the other is intrapersonal. I am in touch with my own emotions. There are some people that are just wired that way. Like they have an uncanny understanding of themselves, right? They are in touch with their own emotions. And I love Gardner's research because it's really affirming and encouraging to a lot of people that don't have super high verbal linguistic and logical mathematical intelligence. And so maybe they've gone through school and they're like, they, what they got out of school is you're not smart, you're dumb. You're not intelligent the way that we describe intelligence. And so I love, I think it's very affirming what he does here. But his point, Gardner's point with this, is that some people are born with these intelligences, right? Another guy, a guy named Howard, Gol uh, I'm sorry, Daniel Goleman, kind of takes his research a step further. And he says, listen, it's not just that people have a high interpersonal or intrapersonal intelligence and they either kind of have it or they don't, but it's actually something that could be learned. And so he uses this terminology, emotional intelligence, EQ. It's actually pretty popular right now, EQ stuff. So you have a high EQ. He would say, this is something that you can learn, that you can and should learn and develop. And so maybe I just don't like understand people very well. I could learn to understand people pretty well. Maybe I just don't really, I'm not very introspective and I don't even really understand myself and why I do some of the things that I do. That's something that we can learn, right? And so Gardner would say, man, there's a whole bunch of people that are sort of born this way. Goldman would say, man, this is something that you and I can learn so we can grow in our personal emotional intelligence and our interpersonal emotional intelligence. Let me give you one other guy. There's another guy named Robert Plutchik, okay? Robert Plutchik is an evolutionary psychologist. He proposed a theory that's probably the most um, widely known and broadly accepted in terms of the psychology of our emotions. And what he would say is this. As human beings, you and I have eight basic emotions. We have eight primary emotions that we feel. I wish this was a little bit bigger. I'm sorry, our screen's a little bit small. But here's what, here's what he'd say. This, this inner circle or the second circle here are the primary emotions that we have. He gives them primary colors here too. So he would say, this is what we could experience as human beings. Joy, trust, fear, surprise, sadness, 
disgust, anger, anticipation, and I already said joy. Those are the eight of them, right? And you listen to that and you're like, okay, well, that's interesting. It seems like I can have more emotions than that, right? And he would say, well, we do. We have other emotions, but they come about in one of two ways. Either they are those eight to a lesser or greater degree, right? So if I can feel, let's use anger. I can feel anger. That's, an, that's a primary emotion. A little bit of anger is annoyance. I get annoyed by things, right? That's a little bit of anger. Intense anger is rage, right? Or we could use joy. A little bit of joy is like serenity. I feel serene. I'm at peace. A lot is ecstasy. It's like so much joy I can hardly contain myself. So we say the, the broader spectrum of emotions come from that, greater or lesser intensity, or a combination of two. And so we would say that when you smush together joy and trust, you get love, right? You, so a combination of two or actually even more of these emotions, you smush them together and you get these other things like submission and optimism and disapproval and remorse. And then he would say, one last thing, he would say that the ones across the wheel from each other are opposites. So at the bottom here, you have sadness. What's the opposite of sadness? Joy, right? I don't think it's, I don't think it's a coincidence he put sadness at the bottom. It's like when you're low. What's the opposite of being really low? Of being up joyous, right? And so all of these across, what's the opposite of surprise? Anticipation. Surprise, I don't know it's coming. Anticipation, I know it's coming, right? And so what's interesting to me about his work is he kind of says the same thing in a little bit, in a much more elaborate way as Natalie did, my six-year-old daughter. Like, these are the emotions that we feel. He would say, they're neither right nor wrong. They're neither good nor bad. They just are. Same thing that Solomon would say. There's a time for everything. There's emotions and feelings associated with those times for everything. Sometimes each one of those is appropriate. And so he would say the same thing. Here's my point with all of this stuff. There is one critical difference with the way that cognitive, educational, evolutionary psychology looks at the spectrum of human emotions and we as Christians look at the spectrum of human emotions. One critical difference, okay? I think this lady, Melissa Donaldson, sums it up well. So this is, this is kind of the, the social sciences approach to emotions. She would say this. Emotions are chemicals, a form of neurotransmitter that provide data about yourself and others. Emotions are a feedback system delivering information that drives behaviors and decisions. And so... Uh, many of them would, would break apart emotions and feelings and say, they would say emotions connect with the body. There's a body response. Feelings connect with the mind. There's a mind response. A lot of times we use those words interchangeably. In fact, in a series we'll use those words interchangeably. But we look at what she says and we would go, yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in a lot of this research and what you guys have found out. But man, it seems like emotions are, and feelings are much more than just chemicals and neurotransmitters and data that drives our behavior and leads to certain feelings. See, here's the difference. Us as Christians, here's how we see it differently. We see sentience, all the different feelings that we feel, all the different emotions that we feel as a gift from God, right? It's all those things that, that, that they describe as well, but it's also a gift from God. 
meant to help us navigate life and live life to the fullest. If you're going to write down one thing today, this is kind of the, the big idea for this series. I would encourage you to write this down. Here it is. Emotions and feelings are a gift from God he uses to help us navigate life and experience life to the fullest. Emotions and feelings are a gift from God that he uses in our life to help us navigate through life and live life to the fullest. And here's the beautiful thing. We talk about, we talk about this a lot, and I'm glad we do. He's with us in all of that. We don't feel these feelings or experience these emotions just by ourselves. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and he's with us, helping us, growing us, shaping us as we feel the feelings that we feel. It's making sense? Okay, so here's what I want to do. Maybe the best way to kind of understand this is to put all of this in a context. And so I want to do that. I want to look at a, a character in the Bible, a person in the Bible, um, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, flip it open to 1 Samuel chapter 1, Okay. So we, we have to be kind of quick here. I wish we had more time. Next week, we'll have more time with these. So this is an emotion that I love. This is one of those emotions. So this is a, half, this is a good emotion, right? This is an emotion that we like to feel. This is one of those ones that I have like an abundance of many times. Sometimes I have a hard time controlling. Actually, this, it's kind of two emotions that we're going to look at together. What we're going to look at today is excitement and anticipation. Excitement and anticipation. I remember when I was a kid, and like we would, I would have a friend over that maybe uh, you know didn't get to see very often, or maybe cousins that came over that we didn't get to see very often. I was a kid who would sit at the window or the screen door and just watch and wait. I could not wait. And every car that would come by, I'd be like, <sighs> another car come by. <sighs> I remember being so excited <laughs> when like people would come over. I could like, I, I had to make a noise to let out some of the excitement. Like I'd be like, Argh! I was so excited. I would ask my parents, you know, when are they going to be here? Now I know as a parent that that's really annoying, but like that's who I was as a kid, right? So like I love excitement. And the example that we're going to look at is this woman in the Bible who feels more, more subtly than me. She doesn't make strange sounds when she gets excited, but uh, more subtly than me, she experiences excitement and joy in a really healthy way. And, and maybe you sit here and you're thinking, is there like an unhealthy way to express it? Like there's probably annoying ways, like making loud noises, but is there an unhealthy way to express excitement and anticipation? And the answer is yes. I actually think we get this wrong. It's subtle, but I think we get this wrong many times in our lives. And so I'm excited to look at this together. So um, let's look at the passage. Where our story picks up, the woman that we're going to look at, her name is Hannah, where we pick up, she's in a rough place. She's in a bad place. She's hurting. She's struggling. She's feeling anything but excitement and anticipation. So look at verse 1. 1 Samuel 1.1. 1, 1. It says, there is a certain man from Ramatham. So these are big words. Bear with me here. certain man from Ramatham, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Okay, that's a man's name. Son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf. We didn't dedicate any kid's name Zuf today. That's good. Uh, he had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children. Hannah had none. So it's probably important for me to say, sometimes when we read passages in the Bible, you read it and you're like, that's weird, right? This is one of those passages we read and we're like, that's weird. 
Why does he have two wives? Is that what God wants for us? And I want to be clear here. Like this is having, uh, this is not the model for the family that God gives us in the Bible, right? God is very clear. It's, it's a husband and wife and family. Like that's what he gives us. And so what, what Elkanah, the husband, has done is not good. It's actually not healthy. And it creates conflict. It creates problem. And we're going to see that here. And so one wife, Peninnah, had kids, right? Which back then was a sign, especially back then, was a sign of blessing and honor. You have kids, you are blessed by God. And the opposite is also true. When a woman couldn't have kids, it was a source of shame and dishonor. And so Hannah wanted a child badly. And Peninnah, who the Bible describes as her rival, would just pick at her and pick at her and rub it in. Look at all the kids that I have and you have none. And so Hannah is just distraught. She's hurting and she's begging God for help. Okay? And one day everything changes. Look at verse 9. Once when they had finished eating... Hannah and Elkanah and her family, once when they finished eating and drinking at Shiloh, which is at the tabernacle, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, so he was the priest at the tabernacle, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. So this is, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I didn't make this connection intentionally, but this is like, so we did child dedications today. This is actually maybe the most extreme form of child dedication. She's like, God, if you will just give me a child, I will give this child back to you in the most extreme way. I'll, I'll, I'll allow the priests to raise him. Right? And no razor to his head is a vow. It's a vow of the Nazarite, basically saying, this child will be holy unto you. Okay? As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, the priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and he said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And so Eli answered, this, this is important. He says, so this is the man of God speaking for God, okay? He says, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. This is the man of God speaking for God. May God grant what you've asked of him, okay? And she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went away and she ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and they worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, because I asked the Lord for him. And it's interesting, after Samuel was born, Hannah held true to her word, to her commitment to God. And after she had weaned the child, she gave him to Eli, to the priest, to be raised there at the temple. And if you look at the life of Samuel, like if you keep reading on in First and Second Samuel, you see one of the greatest prophets and leaders in the history of Israel. It's pretty cool. So, so let's talk about this. Like, let's talk about what we can learn from Hannah. Here, here's a couple questions for you. As Hannah first goes into the temple, what sort of emotions is she feeling? What sort of feelings is she feeling? Well, she's feeling sadness, right? 
She's distraught. She's discouraged. Disappointment. Shame. Right? Those are the feelings that she's feeling. Go, go back to Plutchik's uh, wheel there, emotion wheel. She's at the bottom of the wheel. Right? That's where she, she is stuck there. Second question. Did anything immediately change in her circumstances after she talked to Eli the priest? Not really, right? I mean, she still had no kids. She still wasn't pregnant, right? Nothing really changed in her circumstances. Third question, did anything immediately change in her emotions and her feelings after talking with Eli the priest? Well, yeah, I got changed significantly, right? She flipped to the other side of the wheel. She went from like this deep sadness and grief to this joy, top of the wheels, joy, trust and anticipation. I would take those words and I would say that's like excitement, right? Joy, trust, anticipation, like she is excited. Look, look back at verse 17 because it's hard. The, the uh, wording in our Bibles is a little bit hard to maybe understand the extent of what Hannah was feeling. So look at verse 17. Eli answered, go in peace. So she's like, I'm not drunk. I'm like pouring out my heart to God. He said, go in peace. May the Lord May the God of Israel grant you what you've asked him. So the, so the man of God is speaking for God. So this is not just, I'm going to pray for you. I hope it goes well for you. That's not what it's saying. This is the man of God speaking for God, promising for God, right? And she says, may your servant find favor in your eyes. She went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. That expression, her face was no longer downcast, it's, it's, it's not as intense as maybe what she was feeling. Like, put yourself in her shoes. She goes from this extreme grief and sadness, pouring out her heart to God, begging God to give her a child. And then the priest says, may God give you exactly what you want. And what happened? She flipped. She goes to the opposite end of the spectrum and she's excited. Like, put yourself in her shoes. What would you be feeling if you're her? She trusted him. She believed the promise that was made to her. Man, you would be excited. You would be hopeful, right? You would be full of anticipation. It's interesting, when you get to the next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 2, the beginning of that chapter is about Hannah's prayers. It's Hannah's prayer. And in that, you get a little bit of a glimpse into what she's feeling throughout this process. And this is how she describes herself. Rejoicing happy, delighted. And so she trusted God, and so her heart was full of joy and excitement and trust and anticipation even before anything changed, right? Nothing physically was different yet, but her emotions flipped. So let's talk about this. What can we learn from Hannah? Even though nothing had changed in her experience, in her, in her circumstances, she flipped from sadness and grief to joy and excitement and trust. Why is that? Well, she trusted God. What did she get so excited about? She trusted God, that God was gonna do what God promises to do. Let me ask you a question. What do we get excited about? Like, think about that in your own life. What are things that you get excited about? Maybe it's like a new season of your favorite show. Stranger Things came out last week. Really good. A lot of people are really excited about that. Gilmore Girls, right? Some people are really... Michael, you had that viewing party for Gilmore Girls, right? Don't pretend like you didn't. 
Maybe we get excited about like, you know, the new technology coming out, the new iPhone X. I'm so excited about it. We get excited about, you know, a new car that we get, a house that we get. In our family right now, um, we're getting a puppy in a couple weeks. I know, we are so stupid. It's going to be great. (laughs) But my kids are like through the roof excited. Like they cannot wait. We're a little bit, my wife and I are a little bit more sober-minded with it. We're like, it is going to be a lot of work. But they are so excited. Here's a question. Is it okay to get excited about those things? Yeah, totally, right? Like it's fun to get excited. Like we should get excited. Christians are allowed to get excited about things too. That's all right and good. In fact, excitement is like contagious, isn't it? Like when you're around somebody who's excited, it's fun. It's energizing for us. It's contagious for us. And, and it, maybe it's not even stuff that we would naturally get excited about, right? Like I remember a few years ago, uh, the show Downtown Abbey was popular, right? Or Down, Downton Abbey. I've been corrected in how I say it. Downton Abbey. And, so, and like people, when the new season comes out, they're so excited about it. And I'll be honest with you, I could not be less interested in that show. Like there was nothing inside of me that, that like bubbled up excitement when I heard about Downton Abbey. And yet like when you're with people that are excited about it, you're kind of like, maybe it's going to be good. I don't know. Like I, there's nothing like naturally that like perks up, but you're excited. And so I want to get excited too. Like it's, it's contagious for us. And yet some of us don't allow ourselves much excitement. We don't allow ourselves like to feel much anticipation. Why is that? Why do some of us stay away from excitement and anticipation? Think about that. Because some people, they don't. They're very even keeled. Maybe, maybe uh, you grew up in a house that emotions and feelings were not good. And you push them down. And to be strong and stoic and unfeeling is actually better. There's a lot of people that grew up that way. And so especially juvenile feelings like excitement like anticipation. Ah, no, you don't feel those things. You don't express those things. Maybe for others, it's like, you know, I have this persona that I'm trying to put forward. I want to be really cool. And so when you act like really excited, you seem less cool. And so I don't want to do that. So we push it down. We go, I'm not going to get that excited. Maybe for other people, we don't get excited because we don't want to get disappointed. I don't want to anticipate great things. And then what happens is much worse. And I'm, it's never as good as what I want it to be what I get excited about, what I anticipate. And so I'm just not going to get excited about it. Maybe similarly, we we don't want to get excited because maybe it's going to be good at first, but it's not going to last. And so I don't want to get excited in the first place. Or maybe we go, I'm too hurt to get excited. I'm stuck in my pain. I'm stuck in my hurt, my misery. And nothing seems worthy of me getting excitement from from, or to to anticipate. See, guys, here's what I think. With a proper perspective, excitement and anticipation are an emotional gift from the Lord. With the proper perspective, excitement and anticipation are this gift from the Lord, this emotional gift from the Lord. And here's what I mean by that. God has made us, he's given us the capacity to get excited about things, to look forward and anticipate things, right? And we can look at, the, like, we talk about, you know, TV seasons and technology and, and puppies and stuff we get excited for. And we go, there's nothing wrong with that, like kind of worldly things. There's nothing wrong with getting excited with those things, as long as those aren't the only things that we get excited about, right? And we can get very stuck. Man, our, 
culture and media, commercials, do a great job of getting us excited about just stuff in the world, right? Apple is so good at stirring up buzz about their new technology that comes out. And we go, man, I can't wait. I'm so excited to get this new phone, this new technology. And then we get it and we're like, okay, that's nice. And then next year, another one's coming out, right? And then we move on to something else and we go, okay, that, I'm done with that. I'm not excited about that anymore. I gotta get excited about something else again. I, I should get a new car. I'm gonna get a new car. That's what I'm gonna do. And then we get our first bill, our car payment, and we're like, wow, this is a bummer. This is, this is not good, right? And then we move on. We go, I got to get excited about something else again. We go, I'm going to buy a new house. That is going to be so exciting. And then we get our first mortgage, and we're like, oh, man. All of these things in the world, there's nothing wrong with getting excited about stuff as long as the worldly stuff isn't all that we get excited about because it's like a vapor, right? It starts off, it's there, and then poof. It's gone, and we just move on to something else. Compare that with what we as Christians have the privilege of getting excited about. Like all those things are fine, but they are nothing compared to the promises of God. It's cool for me this week, like just slowing down, like I'm excitable, I get excitable, I, I get that. And so there's all kinds of stuff that excite me, but slowing down and going, how excited I am, am I, for some of the things that God promises in his word, right? Like I made a list of some of these things. How excited am I that Jesus is coming back? He promised, right? How much am I anticipating that and looking forward to that? How excited am I the fact that I am going to be with God forever and ever in eternity one day? That he's, he's going to save me. He promises, right? One day I'm going to experience that. How excited am I that God loves each and every one of us? He promises when we were lost, uh, completely apart from him, doing the opposite of what he wanted, he loves us. That's an incredible promise of God. How excited am I that God is going to build, that Jesus builds his church? It's a promise he makes. And we look at this two and a half years in and we're like, wow, it's exactly what he's doing. How excited am I that God promises that he's changing me from the inside out? How excited am I that God promises that he has plans for me and my life? He's made certain things for me to do, certain people for me to make an impact with. Guys, here's my challenge to you. Here's how, here's how I want to end our time. I know I'm going a little long. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to dismiss you, okay? But here's, here's how I want to end. I want to challenge you. Get excited about the stuff in your life that's happening, like the good stuff. It's great to be excited about those things. But don't neglect getting excited about the promises of God, things that he will do. Some of those things we'll experience in this life. Some of those things we'll only experience in the life to come. But he's faithful in those things. And he will do what he promises, uh, he promises us to do. My challenge to you this week is think about some of those things. Ask God to like boil up anticipation, to boil up excitement for what he's gonna do and some of the amazing promises that he's made to us.